Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hi, Jim. Packed agenda, as always, for the latest edition of The Other Hand. It's a question of deciding what we're going to leave out today. I think there is just so much going on. Here in the UK, where I'm sitting, we've got the extraordinary events going on in Manchester. You couldn't make it up, as the old saying goes. It's ostensibly the Tory party conference. But as far as I can tell, it's the final collapse of the Tory party, or maybe that's just wishful thinking on my part. It certainly is the ultimate last step, perhaps, or another step in the factionalization of the Tory party and getting closer to the completion of Nigel Farage's takeover of the Conservative Party, as far as I can tell. And I know that you've got some thoughts on that and so have I. We've had some house price data from Europe this morning, which uh, for both the EU and the Eurozone. And there are lots of numbers. I'll talk a little bit about some of them. Uh, But the basic point is here, we've got some surprisingly chunky declines uh, around the place, not in Ireland, of course, but in countries as diverse as Germany and Lithuania, either close to or well into double-digit year-over-year house price falls. And so the question I'm going to ask you is, do you think that that wave of house price declines is coming to a little island off the northwest tip of Europe anytime soon? We've got tons and tons going on in financial markets. We've talked a little bit about this in recent pods, but it just keeps going. And bond yields are up again today in the United States, at least going through an important level of 4.7%. And that leads to an awful lot of market discussion, not least the relationship between bond yields and stock markets. And there's an interesting 
discussion being had there that I want to touch on. You've written something on the Irish budget, which I'm going to invite you to summarize for us. And in that context, the usual snapshot of what's been emerging from the Irish economy. And I think you want to talk a little bit about Irish car sales. Connected to that market discussion, I think it's important to note that just over the last two days, oil prices have fallen quite a lot, which is welcome, which is great. Uh, I'm not sure how much it means, but it's also been accompanied by a stronger dollar. The two often go together, actually. And while we might celebrate lower oil prices, the stronger dollar means that the euro price of oil hasn't fallen nearly as much. So there's an awful lot there, Jim. We could probably talk all day about any one of those subjects, but let's try and plough through as many as we can. We'll inevitably, and as always, leave something on the table for next time. But why don't you choose one out of any of those six topics to begin? Okay, Chris, if I may start with the Irish situation. Um, As you say, I posted a piece about the budget on our Substack account And I was just lamenting basically stuff we discussed in our last podcast about the lack of long-term strategic planning and thinking in relation to the budget. Um, It is clearly going to be a scattergun approach to fiscal management, uh, something for everybody in the audience, not a lot for anybody in particular. Um, Some of the measures that have been speculated about in the media at the moment, and we always get massive leaks ahead of the budget and that's what we're going to be treated to over the coming week although it will be interesting to see will there be a different approach under Michael McGrath's first budget but uh, the stuff that's been spoken about at the moment on the tax side it's cutting the USC rate and also lifting the threshold at which one enters the top rate of tax and 1500 euro is being spoken of Uh, last year there was an increase of 4,000 so um, and then significant um, increases in social welfare benefits, particularly universal payments like child benefit. And um, there is speculation about two, possibly three energy stroke electricity credits for consumers on their electricity bill over the coming months. Um, so what I described there is a scattergun approach. It's a little bit for everybody in the audience. It demonstrates no semblance whatsoever of any sort of fiscal strategy. Um, Chris, I did a fundraising cycle for uh, my local GA club, Temple Oak Sing Street, on Sunday. And a a guy came up to me who is in business. And um, he had just been listening to our latest podcast and felt that you were incredibly negative about the Irish economy and he said to tell you that he has had the best September he ever had since he started business 30 odd years ago. Can I ask you a question Jim? You may. Do you think I'm terribly negative about the Irish economy? No Chris I think what you were reflecting in Sunday morning's podcast was an extremely uncertain international backdrop Um, you know with bond yields doing what they're doing we're going to discuss that later in this podcast Um, you'd have to be deeply concerned about the global economy. And from an Irish perspective, you know, inevitably you would feel some of that has to feed in. Uh, Perhaps not because, you know, Ireland is still doing very well. Uh, We have undoubtedly benefited from Brexit today, being the only English-speaking country in the European Union, um, as a native English-speaking, I should say. 
excluding Malta. And as I often say, Waterford is now the fifth largest English-speaking city in the European Union. Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. And although we've only got anecdote rather than data, I think the anecdotes are piling up that one of the biggest surprises to come from the whole Brexit debacle is the way in which Ireland has sailed through it. Uh, There was a lot of talk before Brexit actually happened, post-referendum, that Ireland would be severely damaged. No doubt there are examples of the way in which sectors and individual companies in the Irish economy have been damaged. But overall, as you say, I've got a growing feeling, which I think is shared with you, shared by you, that as the English-speaking gateway to the European Union, Ireland's doing fine and might actually be a beneficiary net-net of Brexit, which would be a remarkable state of affairs. We're not... I think they're yet definitively, but that certainly is the impression that, that, I, that I am getting. And so, yeah, bring it on. The world is always full of surprises, and this may be a big one. Yeah, Chris, I can hear some responses to this already. Um, people pointing out, actually, Brexit is creating serious problems. And for certain uh, businesses and sectors, it has definitely made life much more complicated. But in the aggregate, certainly, um, Ireland is benefiting. I think that I think there's little doubt about that at this juncture. Um, long, long may it continue. I, I think the, the the level of dynamism in this economy is still pretty strong. Um, and I wanted to go on and look at the latest new car registrations, for example, data published by the Society of the Irish Motor Industry uh, yesterday. In the first nine months of the year, new car sales, sorry, new car registrations. 118,369, up 16.5%. Um, light commercial vehicle sales, and this is an indicator, well, some indicator of the health of the SME sector, but light commercial vehicle sales are up by 30.6%. Okay, so, but I, I would caution there that um, during COVID, there was massive growth in the sales of light commercial vehicles because we every time we looked out the door we saw vans delivering um, online shopping and so on and then last year there was a significant retrenchment so there's a bit of catch-up happening this year but it's still a healthy enough number within the car segment um, and this is the ongoing structural alteration of the Irish car market um, EVs, 21,707 sold in the first nine months, up 49.6%. EVs in the first nine months of the year accounted for 18.3% of the market. Uh, EVs still account for just over 1.5% of the total car fleet, but there is a rapid rapid growth occurring there. Petrol um, up 17.2% accounting for just over 30% of new car sales and then diesel this is where the real transformation has occurred diesel sales are down 4% and diesel is now accounting for 22.2% of the market it's not terribly long ago that diesel accounted for well over 50% of the market so this transition from diesel through petrol into EVs is continuing um, one note of caution was that during the month of September, EV sales were down 19.3%. Um, I always say we should never jump to conclusions on the basis of one month's data. Uh, but one of the fears that people driving the EV agenda would have 
um, is that the lack of charging infrastructure, the high cost of electric vehicles, and the fact that the government is reducing grant aid and is changing benefit and kind treatment of EVs, um, that, that there is now a fear that actually the strong growth we've seen over the last couple of years in EVs could run out of breath. And um, there's a couple of reasons why that might be the case. Uh, the first movers are probably gone at this stage. So in other words, those people who really wanted an EV and could afford to buy an EV may now have done so. And what we're into the second wave now where consumers are likely to be much more price sensitive and EVs without significant incentives are incredibly expensive relative to normal cars. Prices are coming down thanks to Tesla and the Chinese um, manufacturers, but still there is a significant financial jump. So we, we may be now entering a period where this second wave of potential EV buyers might be starting to feel some pressure. Um, I could be wrong. And as I repeat again, uh, one should never jump to conclusions based on one month's data. But the overall picture here is of a healthy consumer. And that will be reflected in buoyant VAT returns, for example, when we get the end of September returns shortly. That's excellent news with the slight caveat about, shall I say, EVs running out of steam, if that's not to mix my metaphors far too much. Right, Jim. I want to talk about the situation in the UK, which what's going on in Manchester, which is the Tory venue for the Tory party conference is, is extraordinary. Uh, Sunak is being, I think, rapidly abandoned by uh, a huge segment of his party. Around 60 Tory MPs have apparently joined a grouping that is aligning itself with somebody that we thought was an ex-politician, someone called Liz Truss. Do you remember her? I certainly do. It's nearly and a year since she hit the headlines. And she's campaigning now, obviously, to take over from Sunak, as and when he departs the stage himself, or at least removes, is removed as being leader whenever that might happen. And she's campaigning on a very simple slogan, really, which is, or platform, which is that uh, I was right. And uh, it's quite incredible. It's a particular example of a more general phenomena that is present not just in Britain, but particularly in British politics and economic policy, which is just the way in which the debate has two main aspects, toxicity and fantasy. Brexit is, is perhaps the prime example of that, that the debate is still toxic. It always was uh, completely infected with ideology and pragmatism, reasonableness, addressing of the facts are all completely absent. And the only thing that infects the debate is, apart from toxicity, is fantasy. An example of which uh, I can give you for the Labour Party, not just the obvious ones with the with the Tory party. And their basic position is that uh, Brexit is just one of those things that if only we did properly, would finally start to work. It's a bit like communism. It's a bit like most religions, actually, isn't it? That if only we did what God told us, we'd all be nice people. But the Labour Party is pinning its hopes on getting closer to Europe via uh, what they seem to think is a renegotiation of something called the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, which was the deal under which Britain left the European Union. This, The five-year anniversary of that deal is coming up the, year, the end of the year after next, and it begins essentially in 2026. So we're a couple of years away from it starting, but... It's being called a renegotiation here, which is just nuts. It's part of that fantasy. It's a review of the implementation 
of that agreement. And Brussels has absolutely no interest whatsoever in any form of renegotiation. In fact, I would go on to say Brussels is not going to renegotiate anything in any fundamental way, this side of it being obvious that both Labour and Conservative are more or less on the same page when it comes to Europe, which means never. So there is a a big question mark over what happens next. And nobody, of course, is willing to face up to the fact that uh, what, what happens next is that Britain's relationship with the European Union is not fixed in stone. It's not static. It's like every third country's relationship with the European Union. It's going to move. And Britain now faces the choice, and it is a choice, that nobody wants to make explicitly about either moving closer to Europe or moving further away. And just tinkering with the trade and cooperation agreement and muddling through is not the solution. It means things will get worse rather than better. But anyway, I digress. Uh, The Tory party is moving further and further to the right. Sunak himself is being dragged, or perhaps he's part of the movement. Perhaps he's quite willing to go along with it. All the stuff about uh, ending the war on motorists. Did you ever notice a war being declared on the motorists in the UK, Jim? Can't say I did. No. All of his, and more seriously, rowing back on Britain's environmental credentials is deemed to be a vote winner. And do you know what, Jim? It just might be. There are enough people who are, I'm going to be judgmental here and say selfish, stupid, idiotic enough to believe that if we burn the planet, um, it'll be quite a good thing because it means that we don't have to spend quite so much money on things like electric vehicles, heat pumps for our houses, insulation for our homes. We won't have to put up any more wind farms or build any more solar farms. All that good stuff seems to have electoral appeal in certain quarters. I wonder just how much electoral appeal it has got, but that's the game that we're playing. Sunak has become Farage, in my view, or at least Faragist, and the Tory party's takeover, which began you know, well over a decade ago by uh, Nigel Farage. It was the, the decision by Cameron to call the referendum in the first place was really driven by a fear of Farage and Farage voters. And this process has been ongoing, and we're just seeing the latest manifestation of it. And so um, I'm very fearful for, for what happens next. It must seem to you, Jim, to be all a bit circus-like. Yeah, it's extraordinary, Chris. Uh, when you look at a conference where Liz Truss is the hero, and a year ago she nearly brought the UK economy and its financial system and its pension system down, we have Suella Braverman being spoken of as probably the next leader of the party. Uh, Truss will fight for that. There's a couple of others. Uh, I saw an interview with Pretty Patel where she was praising GB News. Um, and top of it all, I saw a quote from Jacob Rees-Mogg, and I really do want to read out this quote, and it's particularly aimed at my farming brethren in Waterford, whom I know listen to this podcast. So, Jared, if you're listening, I want cheaper food. I want hormone-injected beef from Australia. I've eaten beef in Australia. It's delicious. There's nothing wrong with it. It's extraordinary stuff, isn't it? Jim? It's unbelievable, Chris. It's absolutely unbelievable. You did get one thing wrong, though, there. Did I? Yes, yes. Yeah. Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg. Oh, I beg your pardon. Yes, indeed. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You mentioned GB News there. For our Irish viewers that have no idea, and I sincerely hope that most of our Irish viewers and listeners do not have any idea about what GB News is all about, the shorthand for it is that it's Britain's equivalent of Fox News. Um, it's not quite the same thing. It's got plenty of unique British characteristics, but it is the media arm of this movement to drag Britain in general and the Tory party in particular further to the hard right of the political spectrum. And there's been lots of controversy uh, associated with GB News since its very first day. It's had a revolving door of presenters. It's had a revolving door of owners, actually. And the latest has been a foul rant by one of its presenters and has led to suspensions and apologies and the regulator getting involved and the regulator being a complete patsy, in my opinion. So it's, it's, it's all a bit of a mess. One of the most sinister things for me is that GB News's viewership, which was de- derisory at first, is sl- steadily creeping up. Again, another small, it's still tiny. It's still a, a minority taste here in the UK, thank goodness. But the fact that it's increasing is, is a concern. And if it became the Fox News of Great Britain, I suspect one of its objectives, either implicitly or explicitly, is to finally produce Britain's version of Donald Trump. You might say we've got aspects of Trump with Boris Johnson and Suella Braverman and Jacob Rees-Mogg, sorry, Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg, Dame Pretty Patel, got that right, didn't I? Did you know she was a dame, Jim? I sure she, did. She's also been figuring prominently at the Conservative Party conference. What's striking, one of the many striking things about that conference is that the fringe events at which all of these people, like Rees-Mogg, like Truss, are speaking, are um, standing room only. And the main conference where cabinet ministers like the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt are speaking, you have to spot the attendee. Uh, it tells you just what's going on. So it's a circus. It's just, well, circus or pantomime. I'm not quite sure which to use, but it's Chris, certainly... what is the significance of... Um, I, I guess we've spoken of four politicians uh, in the same vein, um, Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg, but then the other three, Liz Truss, Suella Braverman and Pri Patel, um, all female. Jacob Rees-Mogg isn't a female, Jim. <laughs> I said, I said, no. Sorry, I, I must have switched off at that point. Sorry, sorry. Um <laughs> Jesus, yeah, well, I won't even answer that. What, what's going on, Chris? I, I don't know. I don't think there's anything significant or, or to that. A lot of people, some people try to attach significance to the fact that the people who are most anti-immigrant, are most keen on sending refugees to Rwanda, are all uh, children of immigrants themselves. And I'm thinking of Rishi Sunak, Suela Bravman and Priti Patel. I don't want to make too much of that. I don't think there's any real significance to that at all. I think it's just coincidence. What what is noticeable is that the Tory party is remarkably diverse in terms of both its female and its ethnic representation, which is a good thing. The fact that 
some of these people have views that are completely odious just reflects, I think, humanity, that having odious views is not something restricted to one sex or one ethnic grouping. Just as criminality, you're just as likely to be criminal no matter what your colour or ethnicity. So it is with absolutely ludicrous, vile, dangerous, ultra-right-wing views, there are going to be plenty of immigrants with those views, just as there are plenty of domestic residents and citizens with those views. I, I think that um, the Tory party needs to be need, can congratulate itself on having more diversity than the Labour Party does. It's, it's an interesting little fact, but and the Labour Party needs to do more work in that area. But the fact that they're women and or children of immigrants. I mean, look at Jacob Rees-Mogg. You couldn't get anybody more 17th century English. And he shares the same views as these these other uh, people, either ex-cabinet colleagues or, or and or current MPs. It is what it is. Yeah, I, I guess the reason why I was really raising that, uh, the gender breakdown of the people we've been talking about, um, if you look at countries like Turkey, Hungary, uh, Slovakia after the weekend's elections, Poland, uh, Trump. So a, a lot of the sort of radical stroke right-wing leaders are all male. So it's 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 a little bit, I find it a little bit unusual uh, that there are so many females of that ilk in the ascendancy in the Conservative Party. Uh, probably no significance, but anyway. Chris, looking at the um, Eurozone housing market, you know, you mentioned in your introduction um, Eurozone house prices have fallen by 1.7% in the second quarter, the first annual decline since 2014. Germany is down by 9.9%. Denmark is down by 7.6%. So there's uh, something big happening. Interest rates are working. Interest rates are working, and I think they're doing too much work, to be honest. I I wrote something on our Substack website yesterday that uh, nicked a chart from uh, another economist uh, from Twitter, actually. Uh, Twitter still, at times, can be useful, and th- it showed credit growth. Now, if you're of the monetarist persuasion, or just somebody that thinks that credit growth is an important indicator of what's going on in the economy, what's happening to lending and borrowing in the European area uh, it's frightening. Um, it's collapsing. It's 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 majorly negative over the last three months on this particular measure that I mentioned in my Substack post, and it's another piece of evidence that convinces me that the U- European Central Bank has over-egged things when it comes to interest rate rises. Um, that's a view. Um, it may or may not be right. It verges on a forecast. But going back to those house prices, Jim, I think that this is another indicator that things. Um, may well have been overdone because when these things start to turn, they don't usually um, stop. Uh, the turn continues. The trend is your friend with these and indeed many other economic and financial time series. Because the numbers you've mentioned for Germany and Denmark, uh, Sweden 6.8%, in Croatia down 13.7%, Bulgaria down 10.7%, and nearly 10% down in Lithuania. These are countries, most of which are quite some way away from Ireland, but the forces acting on these house prices are similar, but also different to the ones acting on Ireland. It's mostly, in my opinion, got to do with two things connected to each other. And those two things, of course, are higher interest rates and weaker economic growth. Now, over in Ireland, Jim, you've got the higher interest rates, but you ain't, to any significant extent, got the weaker economic growth that these countries have. Do you think that you can remain serenely immune from all of these external forces 
um, and just continue to plough your own furrow, to use a farming metaphor that you might recognise, mate? Um, or do you think that eventually it's going to wash up on your shores? Well, the latest CSO data on house prices show on the year to July national average residential property prices up by one and a half percent. So we're certainly still flying in the face of uh, the international trends that you've outlined there across the European Union. But the rate of increase is decelerating rapidly here. Um, month on month changes, there has been a bit of a jump again in the last couple of months because um, I think there's two forces really driving the Irish market at the moment in a positive sense. Well, driving house prices up, if you regard that as positive. One is demand forces remain extremely strong, uh, growing population, growing young population, all of that stuff we've spoken about. Uh, supply continues to be very limited. So there is strong demand and indeed all over the country, um, one hears anecdotal stories about properties going on the market, expected to make a certain amount, and um, they're making significantly more than that in many cases. So that is still reflecting the fundamental demand supply imbalance here. Um, and of course, the economy, the economic backdrop, as we've described, is still pretty strong here. Uh, but it, it is hard to believe that looking at the possibilities for the global economy over the next 12 months and we'll get onto a market discussion in a second and the possible implications of that but the global outlook in the next 12 months is deeply uncertain so against that sort of backdrop um, it's it's hard to see Irish house prices remaining immune um, are we looking at the possibility of the sort of decline that we're seeing in Germany at the moment um, I think not but I've been wrong before yeah, I'd be very reluctant to forecast this either way. I think there are two things that are just all next to impossible to forecast. Number one is exchange rates, which we talk about often and indeed try to forecast now and again, and and house prices. You've heard me talk about forecasting these things far too often. Let's move the discussion rapidly on to another market-based topic, which is this thing that we've been talking about for for a little while now, bond yields and equities. Bond yields are the cost of, of uh, usually government borrowing. Um, they also encompass corporate borrowing. They affect everything in ways that non-financial types often find tricky to understand. But your mortgage and every other loan that you have, every other asset price you have, including your house price, depends at the end of the day on what the long-term rate of interest is. That's what a bond yield is. And the development today has been a continuation of the recent trend in which bond yields have been going up. You've got all the numbers there, and I'll ask you for them in a second. But I do know that this morning, for example, the U.S. 10-year borrowing rate for its government moved over 4.7%, which is a new high um, in recent terms. It's the highest it's been for many years. And the most interesting thing for me, or the most sinister thing as well about all of this, is the way that the two main financial markets in the world are now really building a sense of opposition or tension to each other. Because bond yields are repricing, and they're repricing for the higher interest rates that we've already got, lasting for an awful lot longer than they previously thought. So what the central banks have been up to, pushing up short-term interest rates, they're the ones that get all of the headlines in the newspapers. They affect bond yields. Of course they do. And bond yields previously were thinking that those interest rates wouldn't stay that high for very long. Now they're saying, oops, they're actually going to stay here for a long period of time. 
The first thing I'd say about that is it's just another forecast. But for all sorts of reasons connected with the point I made earlier about all asset prices being connected to long-term interest rates, I don't think that if the bond market is right in its view that these interest rates are here to stay for the foreseeable medium to longer term, I think equities are in a lot of trouble. Stock markets will also have to reprice in the way that bond markets do. And that may well happen. I don't know. It's another forecast. But if the bond markets are right, and that means that bond prices and bond yields are right, I think equity prices, stock markets are the wrong price. They're too high. And that could lead to a lot of trouble. For what it's worth, I don't think bonds are the right price. I think they are sowing the seeds of their own destruction because they are going to weaken economic growth. It's already happened in Europe, and I think it will happen in the United States. But again, those are forecasts. Um, And if I'm right, equities, whether or not they do have a wobble, severe or not, on the back of these higher bond yields, they're basically okay. So if I was, and I'm not, an investment person, Um, I would be looking at any big fall in equities as a result of what's been happening in bond markets, which I think could happen as a buying opportunity. But am I looking around too many corners, Jim? No, Chris. I mean, the 10-year bond yields, uh, the United States, 473. Um, I remember it's only, it seems like days ago when we were talking about the danger of that bond yield going through 4%. It sailed through it. UK up at 456, Ireland at 336. So these are dramatic increases in bond yields. And as you say, they are reflecting this view in the markets that interest rates will remain higher for longer. And indeed, we've seen comments from a few Federal Reserve officials over the last 24 hours talking about the need for another interest rate increase in the States. Um, That has certainly fed into that sort of narrative. Um, But that is a forecast, um, basically. And um, I kind of I think I kind of agree with you that um, there is no guarantee that bond, sorry, that um, interest rates, short term interest rates will remain higher for longer because um, the economic impact that this is going to have, I think, will force central bankers to move sooner rather than later. At least that's what logic would suggest. Um, But uh, again, in in the immediate future, that does set a very challenging backdrop for equity markets, I think. And, you know, looking at equity markets today, and we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, um, all markets Tuesday are, afternoon. Oh, Tuesday afternoon. Good God. There you go. You're losing it, mate. Oh, I am losing it, Chris. It's been a long week. <laughs> already. <laughs> already. It's been a long week already. So... Yeah, recording this Tuesday afternoon and um, all markets are in red territory at the moment, um, which is, is yeah, I'm uh, going to say it's quite extraordinary. It's not. No, it's, it's exactly not. what they should be doing, given yes. what's happening in bond markets. So, uh, you know, if bond markets are certainly going to go higher in the short term, that would appear to be likely against that backdrop. You would expect equities to fall further. I would agree with you. I think uh, the bond markets have overreacted. Um, short-term rates will probably be cut sooner rather than later and bond yields will start to reflect that possibility over the coming months and that would be supportive of equity markets. So perhaps if one was um, an inve- a longer-term investor particularly, um, there may be better value available soon in equity markets. 
a big component of the bond yield, of, of bonds price, same thing, is uh, what inflation is going to do. We haven't talked about that for a long time, and I don't want to talk about it today because we've run out of time. But just one small piece of data that was out this morning um, is that in the most recent month for which we have data, food prices in the UK, by a very small amount, actually fell. That's not just the rate of inflation coming down. Food prices actually fell. Now, if that, if we can read too much into one month's data, if that is the start of something not just here in the UK, but also elsewhere, hopefully in Ireland. That's an unambiguous good thing from those of us who have to buy food. And I think it's another sign out of which we've had several that the underlying inflation may come in to be better than the central banks have expected. And that all feeds back into that story about interest rates having to remain higher for longer, just being wrong. So on that note, Jim, I'll shut up. If you've got anything else to say, please feel free. But otherwise, I think we should call it a wrap. Um, as we wrap up on Tuesday afternoon, um, I think we should advise all of our listeners to watch the shenanigans in Manchester this week. Yes. Um, one thing I didn't mention about that, of release. course, is in the spirit of not being able to make things up, uh, they are cancelling the Birmingham to Manchester leg of the high-speed railway yeah. in Manchester. And they're announcing it in Manchester. Wow. You couldn't make it up, could you, mate? Listen, no. speak to you next time. Oh, and by the way, everybody, listen to our podcast, which will be coming out in the next day or two. We've done another one with the neuroscientist Shane O'Mara. Uh, absolutely fascinating stuff. A lot of stuff from left field, but with a lot of contemporary relevance to our politics and financial and economic situation. And also, please take a look at our Substack site. Jim and I have written very different pieces over the last few days. And if you like our work, please, please share with your friends. Uh, that's something that really, really helps us keep this podcast and written material going. Thanks a lot. See you later, Jim. See you, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.